Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. The Cannes Film Festival kicked off this week, and so to talk about the selection, I joined forces with Amy Taubin, who's been going to the festival for decades and is writing about it for Artform. This year at Cannes is a little different for a number of reasons, and so we talk about that. But we also discuss a highly anticipated title from the first week, a film about the Velvet Underground from director Todd Haynes. Amy is actually in the documentary as well, and she was kind enough to share some of her first-hand experiences at the time with The Velvet Underground, Andy Warhol, and of course the screen tests, many of which appear in Haynes's film. So let's go to our conversation, and we'll be back together tomorrow with Amy to talk about more films showing at Cannes. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is a series of Cannes podcasts talking about the movies at this long-awaited return from, I guess, a period of hibernation necessitated by the pandemic, also necessitating a summertime date for the festival. So we're going to talk now a little bit about the festival in general, but mostly just uh, some of the movies. And I'm very happy to be doing this with Amy Taubin. So off we go, Amy, with our critique in exile, or critique from abroad. (laughs) Hi, Nick. Well, um... (laughs) Yeah, I'm kind of uh, rueful about not being a can. Um, I mean, it's the first can I've missed since 1994. Wow. And I actually, because I was so miserable about missing it, I watched the episode of that series that's on Netflix called My Agent, which is very funny and I like a lot. And it's actually, I think, more skillful in terms of writing and character development than you might think at first. I think it's Mm. really good, that series. And one whole episode takes place in Cannes, and I wept (laughs) because I wasn't there. (laughs) And it's actually Juliette Binoche, who was the Mm co-star of Leo's Carrick's still two greatest films, Lovers on the Bridge, how was it? Mm -hmm translated, yeah. and Mauvais Bad Blood with Denis Levant. And she gives this great speech about women at Cannes, and this great feminist speech. And I worked through the whole thing. And they run around, they try and dresses and all, do all that garbage. <laughs> um, and it was amazing. Um, but, but I'm not there. And then Jonathan Romney on Twitter made me glad I wasn't there because, you know, the protocols, the safety protocols are so terrible. You have to stand in a line to get tested every 48 hours. You spit in a cup. It's that kind of test. They take all the spit. (laughs) I don't know. They label (laughs) your spit. And you don't find out for six hours if you're good to go. So it seems that combined with the fact that this is a festival where you stand online for at least half the time that you are actually in movies, combine that with these extra lines of COVID testing, and they won't accept your vaccine uh, certificate that you've been vaccinated because the French don't have a way to translate the barcode on your American vaccination certificate so that they can read it. So everyone has to get tested. And that just seems like a nightmare. And I also thought of Slacker, 
because I'm sure that people are going to buy and sell. Critics spit. <laughs> Just like they did Madonna's pap, supposed pap smear in Slacker. <laughs> I wonder which one will fetch the highest price. <laughs> a, a black market of, of, of spit. Yeah. I guess there's also that, um, is that in Crash or something? The, the Ballard, the, in the original Ballard about like collecting Elizabeth Taylor's old cocktail napkin or something. Oh, like yeah. That too. <laughs> yeah. And then in Brandon Cronenberg's first movie, they collect viruses from venereal disease viruses. You know, there's a big, strange collective mar market for biological markers. Yeah. So, so just as well that we're we're not contributing to that it, it, part of that uh, economy uh, of <laughs> the economy of spit, just the critical economy for us. Um, but it does sound like a, a baroque layer on top of the already baroque system that they have there, um, and I can only imagine how it. Do you have to give less spit if you have a better badge? I don't know. <laughs> it's it's a right. kind of experiment as well first time for everyone there so maybe that that makes it uh, some sort of camaraderie in that i'm sure the white badges have their own spit yeah it's a, it's a porcelain container instead of a plastic yeah it's an achievement i guess that it's that it's even it's even happening yeah it is an achievement and i do think that the lineup seems very promising yeah, I, I would agree. And, you know, I guess they benefit from the holdovers in a way from last year. You get the kind of cream of the crop from two years worth in a way. And, and I don't think that's an exaggeration either, because I was just looking at, like a lot of people, I kind of had my best guess at what would, was going to be in the now 2020 edition. Uh, and a lot of the same films are, are the ones that are in this yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, they've reorganized the section. So they have this new section, which is called Premieres. Yes. It's separate from the competition, which is, you know, on top. And then there are the films that are out of competition. And then there are special screenings. And then there's this new category called Premieres, which I guess are by directors who've won too often to be in competition. That's what it is. Yeah, I, it also feels like a way of they might have had a, a kind of embarrassment of riches and they kind of just wanted it all. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is a way of, of doing that, because these are movies that, you know, I think more than a few of them in this can premiere section uh, in another year might have been in a certain regard. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a Mathieu Amaric movie. There's an Andrea Arnold movie. There's a Desclachins movie. I mean, for some reason, can always seems to have a thing about Desclachins. They don't want him in competition. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 kind of weird. Um, Hong Sang Soo is there. Ava Husson, who did the sort of unbeloved movie, uh, whatever, two or three years ago, um, the Cornell Mundrisco movie. I mean, all of those, I think, in another year would have been in either competition or uncertain regard. So it's uh, kind of like spent like a land grab or something like that. <laughs> but they sound like promising movies, and even in the uh, you know out of competition. I mean, that's where the Velvet Underground movie, which I think we'll talk about, is as well. Um, I don't know anything about Stillwater, but that's there. So I, I feel like they had a fair amount to choose from this year, and they kind of took as much as they, they could, basically. <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah, it seems like a strong selection. Annette was going to be an event, partly just because of, you know, Leo Carax's pace of how he produces his movies. And, you know, you have a new Apichapong movie, Memoria, which fairly definitely, I think, was going to be in 2020. 
you got a Sean Baker movie. Um, I don't know if I already said the Wes Anderson movie, obligatory Jacques Odiard movie, and Paul Verhoeven movie. So it's I should stop reading it because I'm going to start getting depressed. But uh, yeah, right. <laughs> um, and they'll all be in Toronto. This is true. They'll all be in Toronto. And, you know, I suppose a good year for Cannes is also a good year for the New York Film Festival. They can take twice as many. Yeah. So, but did you have any movies in, I mean, before we get to a specific film, did you have any movies you were especially looking forward to in in this lineup? You know, I was kind of careful not to look too carefully or I'd feel too bad. Sean Baker. Oh, yeah. You know, I really want to see Sean Baker with his film is in competition. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there are certain films that you like to see over there. I would have liked to see uh, the Todd Haynes film over there simply because mm. about 30 seconds of my Andy Warhol screen test is on screen in Todd Haynes's film. And therefore, I could have seen my face on that huge <laughs> Lumiere screen as it was 50 years ago, 55 years ago. That would have made me very happy. No, that would have been terrific. <laughs> <laughs> that was an amazing moment. I mean, I, I, that must be a little surreal <laughs> seeing that. Well, you know, they're shown all over in museums, but it, it's very large, you know, on mm-hmm. that screen. And also, Todd, now we're already talking about the Velvet Underground movie. Uh, So maybe we should just talk about that. Sure. So Todd Haynes made a documentary about the Velvet Underground, which will be on Apple sometime in the fall. And it's a really interesting, I mean, I've seen, and I've also been in, a lot of documentaries about Warhol and about the avant-garde film and music scene during the 60s. I've never seen one as good as this. And I've never seen one as serious as this. Mm -hmm. And what's odd about it is Todd takes himself out of it completely. So it's very different from the movie he made, which is kind of based on the relationship of Roxy Music, David Bowie, and the Velvet Underground, Velvet Goldmine, which is a very, very personal film. And there are characters in there who are kind of surrogates for Todd and or Jim Lyons. Mm. Uh, This is an absolutely impersonal film. Uh, He isn't in it at all, and he constructs a narrative and a soundtrack, largely from John Cale, who holds the movie together, and from other people who were either Maureen Tucker in the band or part of the music world at that time and the Warhol world. And what's so interesting is it's a film that details how that moment in music when avant-garde and rock or pop came together very briefly in this amazing band. Uh, And then all the reasons it also had to fall apart, which is that Lou wanted to be famous and John didn't give a fuck Um, (laughs) and I think it's wonderful I think it's just terrific yeah I was pretty mesmerized by it I mean this music I mean like a lot of people this music means a, a lot to me and in some ways it's like one of those rare pieces of just something perfect and so 
it's all the more impressive for me that the movie was able to find its own voice and its own ideas. It's almost hard to kind of plot out a path when you have music that's that strong and that overpowering in a way. It really is a movie that illuminated the connections you're describing in ways that I hadn't seen done or even heard done. I mean, for example, one of the connections that I think is so elegantly said almost sneaks up on you is this idea of the drone mm-hmm. and how that works in the Velvet Underground's music. And then also how somehow the, the kind of simplicity of the drone is kind of dovetails with the simplicity of the riff, of the uh-huh. guitar riff. Uh, that is a kind of connection that is, is hard to make. Like it requires a lot of orchestration to just have that, that basic idea. And so that was something that was great because of their connection to Lamont Young. And to minimalism in the visual arts, which is something that people never seem to get about Warhol. Warhol, yes, he was a famous pop artist, but he also was a minimalist. Uh, And he was one of the great minimalists. And that's particularly true of his films. And, you know, I'm old, so I used to go to those first, Lamont Young, John Cale, Dream Syndicate. Oh, really? Performances every single week when they were, I guess, on Chamber Street in the same building that Yoko Ono's loft was in, or maybe a different building. I used to go every Sunday and uh, for a year. And that was the greatest music and the greatest art experience of my life. I mean, there'll never be anything comparable except the velvet sometimes got there. Those performances are like, you'd be there for several hours? very long. Yeah, you could be there for six, eight hours. Uh, They were also very loud. And um, that's when I was married to Richard Foreman and we were really nuts. And I don't know how deaf he is. It's amazing I'm not deaf because we used to lie right up against the speakers. (laughs) (laughs) So you'd you'd feel it as well as you'd hear it. Yes, yeah. And Tony Conrad, the avant-garde filmmaker and artist, was also part of that group early on. And there's text from Tony in the voiceover in Todd's film that I guess he took from there's a wonderful film about Tony Conrad, a biographical film that I think is one of the best films about a filmmaker or artist I've seen. Um, and kind of really nearly as good as this, except, you know, you don't have velvet underground music. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask, I mean, you've been to velvet underground shows, a number of them, or? Yeah, I mean, you know, Barbara Rubin, who discovered the velvet underground, or at least introduced the velvets to Warhol, was a good friend. And she was the person who first took me to the factory. And I didn't like the factory. I mean, I didn't get addicted to the factory like I was addicted to seeing first Lamont and his Theater of Eternal Music or whatever it was called then because it wasn't yet called that. It was called something Mm -hmm. else. And the Velvets. So I actually saw them when they were at the Cafe Bazaar with Barbara and those first weird, you know, fairly terrible performances. And then I followed them to when they were with the exploding plastic inevitable on at the dome on St. Mark's place. And I went there every night. I think half the time 
they weren't there that long. They were just there maybe, I don't know, 10 weeks or something. But mm -hmm. I went many, many, many times. I think I was in a play at the same time. And so I would go after the theater. Um, and I'd hang out in the balcony with Barbara and she'd be running around with these projectors and doing this <laughs> multimedia light show. And I would just be there mesmerized by the music. And then I would hang around outside and Nico would come down in her white paraphernalia pantsuit uh, <laughs> with the boys. And I had a terrific crush. Now I'll say it out loud on John Cale. Uh, most people had crushes on Lou, but I had crushes on John. Um, and never talked to him, never said a word to any of them. Because oh. I was incredibly shy. Yeah. So that was a formative part of my life. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible to be there at, at that moment watching this. Does it feel true to, you know, how they affected you or how? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think in part because... Obviously, because of the clips that Todd uses, and Todd does this, he makes this very smart choice, which is that Warhol, after his earliest films, began doing these double screen projections. And in a way, that's how when he got to the talkies, he could still play with time because he couldn't slow them down like he slowed down the silent films and showed them. I mean, in at silent speed, oh, so right. they were a third slower than you were in real life. Mm -hmm. The way he would play with time was to show two reels at once and split the time that way. And Todd does the same thing. So very, almost always he has the screen split at least into two parts, usually two thirds and one third but often into many more parts than that. So yeah. that was really interesting. Yeah, it's, and it's kind of un unnerving because it, uh, for me at least, it kind of did something different to the Warhol portraits. Like he has one of Lou Reed staring at us for a while and it changes something for me, you know, about how that's functioning because I don't feel like I'm looking at him. I feel like he's looking out at the world in a way and kind of observing but somehow it felt I had a sense of him as, a, as an observer rather than the observed of those portraits. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, that, I think that's true because on the other side of the screen, you would have, in quotes, a much more normal image. And when in the Warhol portraits, people look directly into the camera lens like they're instructed to do, it's this weird thing that happens, which is that they are looking at you. But when you put them to one side of a larger screen, it isn't as direct, you know, it isn't like eye to eye. Mm. It's kind of decentered. So that is interesting. But it is the way you would look at them in these kind of horrible museum shows that have been happening where you have a bunch of portraits that are usually very badly transferred just on <laughs> the wall. Todd did amazing work in post because the screen tests look better than I ever saw them in film. Hmm. I mean, they look certainly better than they ever looked in the horrible video transfers that they're usually shown in, but they look even better than they look in the original films. They're just much more, 
I don't know, luminous or something. Yeah, they, they are, which, which really supercharged the feeling of presence that they have too. They just felt for me like hyper vivid. Mm -hmm. You know, I know they're silent, but I felt like I was hearing silence. <laughs> like it was silent because they were not saying anything. Like, so in other words, it felt like it was a sound film in a way because that's how present it felt in a way. Um, uh -huh. I mean, how did it come about that you, you sat for yours? Well, I went to the factory with Barbara. I must have gone there about, I don't know, maybe eight times in the course of three weeks. And as I said, except for watching Andy work and discovering two things, he was such a workaholic and he had to have all this chaos around him to focus him which was extraordinary. You know, sometimes when you're a journalist and you write as people used to write in newsrooms, mm -hmm. it's the same kind of thing because people all around you are doing things and you're just sitting there, you know, typing away and it focuses you. Well, that's what it was like, I think, for Warhol when I'd watch him work and it was pure chaos going on around him. But anyway, you'd go up there. And if he liked the way you looked, he'd say, oh, do you want to do a screen test? And so I said, in my case, I said, yeah. And there was a little, it wasn't quite a booth, but it was a little space in the back of the silver factory that kind of was screened off a little bit. And there was a stool and you sat on it. There were one or two lights and Andy would look at your face and set up the camera and the lights and tell you to try not to move and to try really hard not to blink and just look straight in the, to the camera. Mm. Um, and he'd walk away and he wouldn't come back until the roll of film, which was in 24 frames a second, went through the camera in two minutes and 65 seconds or whatever it does. Mm -hmm. You know, you would sit there and I was an actress. It wasn't all that hard for me. Uh, I knew how to sit and look into a camera and to follow that direction and to try to stay alive. And it was interesting. Yeah. And I did too. And then I was in Couch, or a segment of Couch, the only non-pornographic segment of Couch, which is also in Todd's Velvet Underground film. There's maybe five seconds of it. And it's four people, including me, sitting on the couch in the factory, eating bananas. Uh, and it's on screen when they're about four other images on screen. So, mm. but actually someone asked me afterwards, was that you eating yeah. the banana? And I said, yes. <laughs> and it was. I'm sorry, Amy. You could tell I automatically it's click okay. into like interviewer mode. <laughs> the, you, I mean, you, you must have interviewed uh, with Todd like a fair amount. Was there other stuff that you talked about that wasn't, it wasn't in the movie necessarily or? You know, it's interesting what happened with this documentary. I was supposed to do my interview, I guess it was two, two or three years ago, just mm. after I came back from Cannes. 
and Ed Lockman was shooting and Todd was doing the interviews and I came back from Cannes with the flu and so I couldn't do it and I couldn't do it for at least 10 days and by the time I could do it even though I had laryngitis and could barely talk but I managed to croak out some lines Todd was no longer around so his producer was the person who asked the questions that Todd had written out and Ed Lockman wasn't there and his assistant did the shooting and I'm sad about that because mm-hmm. I like Ed. Well, I know that almost sounds like a, a Warholian uh, turn of events <laughs> in, in, the, in the sense that it's like the Warholian studio. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, we can we can put our, our critic hats back. <laughs> so, okay. you know, we, I guess we sort of covered more the first half when the band came together and then Nico was added as like a catalyst to the mixture. But then the movie also moves into the 70s and the the separation that you describe. I mean, you put it that basically Lou Reed cared about fame and cared about taking the band places as opposed to, I guess, just solely kind of experimenting for small crowds in the know from one city to the next. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there is no doubt that it was a terrible breakup. And it was a terrible breakup because there was so much, because there was this great band at stake and maybe they couldn't have gone further in what they were doing, but nevertheless, it was terrible (laughs) the Mm. way it happened. And it's interesting. I had seen a rough cut of the movie and as I remember, it was much more divided in half Mm. a before and after you know, the formation and the height of glory and then almost as much time in the movie after Kale leaves the band. Mm-hmm. And that's not true anymore. It, it, that's barely the last third. And that's a good thing because, you know, the downward trajectory of the Velvets afterwards. I mean, my brother, with whom I agree about very little, really prefers them with Doug Yule when oh, Doug yeah. Yule takes over. But, um, and a lot of people do uh, because it gets to be more pop mm-hmm. or fulfills kind of expectations of normal durations of songs and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I just think it gets to be really boring. And I think Todd does too. And so that's kind of interesting. The thing that happens, however, is that Mo is in both sections and Maureen Tucker mm-hmm. really comes into her own. And she really talks amazingly about that experience. And Yeah, that seemed to be definitely part of the mission of the movie was kind of giving her a rightful place. And I was pretty impressed with that. And she's also, I just came to appreciate her in the in the footage that they have too of the band playing. There's There's one where she's just, yeah, she's playing away in like a Jets sweatshirt or something. And everyone else is kind of all modded up. And yeah, I mean, the division of the chronology was interesting to me because I also wasn't sure where he was going to go in that final third. I feel like with the Velvet Underground, a fair amount has been written about, and Lou Reed about, you know, these kind of walking portraits that he writes through lyrics, you know, and sketching out a whole like gallery of city, city street personalities. Right. And especially people on the margins and really people that are not not in songs, you know, are not being written about. So that's something that's not 
I mean, as I recall, is not so present in the documentary. I think he felt like he really wanted to go more the art history, art lineage, and, and those connections. I don't know. That, that was the impression I got. That's really interesting because what interested me was how out Lou was mm. at the beginning of the movies. Even though he wasn't really out, he was... Uh, I mean, I was totally unaware that Lou was playing in gay clubs even before he came to live on Ludlow Street, that his beginning in rock and, you know, those kind of pop bands, that was something I was not aware of. And so there is like a thread about gender and gender ambiguity. Mm in the film that's really quite interesting mm -hmm. uh, and, and different than I've ever seen it before. Yeah, it was a thread that I almost thought would become more prominent by the last third. Um, then there is the footage at the very end, which was pretty interesting to me. It seems like Warhol and Louis got together. It sounds like they're just kind of reminiscing. I don't know exactly what the year oh, must have right. been. right. They sort of seem to be talking about the band and people in the band like it's in the past. Oh, it definitely is in the 80s. Yeah, that's it. There was something candid about that in, in a way mm -hmm. that hadn't happened up, up to that point that kind of gave me some insight, just a, a less guardedness and more of an openness to it. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, the final third, it, I guess there's just a lot to kind of run through, um, while at the same time you can tell that Todd Haynes doesn't want to fall into the like band breakup kind of template, which is exactly is so yeah. hard to do because it's almost like it's in the DNA of pop history somehow. It's like you really have to you have to build something complex and subtle to work around it against that, which is what he does for the first half. But by the last third, it's like you almost can't <laughs> you can't avoid what happened. You know, you had these two yeah. strong musical voices and personalities and etc. It was a project where I heard and, and I thought, wow, he really doesn't shy away from the harder tasks you could set for yourself, you know? <laughs> right? I mean, it's like... It's absolutely true, yeah. We did a Bob Dylan movie. Okay, what's... Oh, let's do a Velvet Underground. It's like, how? <laughs> you know? It's a challenge. So yeah, Velvet Underground, that's in the first couple days in the festival. Do you have anything else you want, want to add? No, I think that's about it for that. Yeah. I'll, I'll spare you more questions. I'll just ask you in person sometime. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's the first part of our conversation with Amy about Cannes. Stay tuned for more highlights tomorrow. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.